Last time we uh, effectively simply did the introduction, worked through a few of the Greek words. This week we'll be getting into Matthew chapter 7. There is one more uh, Greek word as I was digging in a little more that I found. Um, very similar. We, we talked about krino and anakrino and katakrino. And I found sugkrino in, in my study as I was continuing to do so, looking into various words. Um, found just two times in the New Testament, so not, not common. Um, as with the others, this is a compound word with um, the prepositional free prefix sug on it, meaning uh, with or together. And then, of course, we have krino, which is to judge, to judge with or to judge together. And the idea here is judging something against another thing. So we have the idea of comparison, right? And that is how you'll, we'll, we'll see the word when we, when we get there, um, is the idea of comparing. As a matter of fact, um, uh, we... we spoke of that this last Sunday. We dare not make ourselves of a number or compare ourselves one with another. And that's where we see this word used um, is within that context of comparison one to another. Um, so just wanted to um, mention that as well, that we do have this, this other, this extra Greek word, another, another prepositional prefix um, that, that we find there. Um, so Teachings on judgment. Uh, now, we're going to begin in Matthew 7, and I've told you this for a little while, and we'll see how, how much we get through tonight. I actually ended up deleting some slides today because I'd really like to, to go with this, this other format where I'm not so much giving you uh, the content directly, but rather that we're kind of walking through it together. We'll see how it goes. If, if uh, it just ends up not working out super well, then we will modify our, our system, but uh, Matthew chapter 7 is where we find ourselves, and we are in verses 1 through 5, and the Bible says this, Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote which is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Okay, so we have this statement, and we, we find judge here within these first two verses four times. Uh, judge, judged. Judge and judged again, and then uh, judgment is also. It's not. It's not the verb krino. It would be the um, um, the noun form of, of the word. Um, but it is this word krino. So it doesn't have any prepositional prefix on the front of it. It's simply the word to judge. It's a standard word for judgment, and um, we do find that this is the first real time in the in the the New Testament teaching where we contend with this concept of judgment. Uh, one of the things that we talked about a little bit last week, when you're studying the Word of God, um, we believe that God gave us the book, right? And because God gave us the book, not just any individual parts of the book, or not just uh, uh, um, the, 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 the uh, Gospel of Matthew and some of the epistles, but rather He gave us the whole book, and that it is a single revelation of God to man, it helps to think of the introduction to a term. We're going to talk about this quite a bit in Genesis coming up here soon with the idea of death. 
When we define death, very similar to, to the words like hope and love and whatever else, when humans define death, we define death as the, the, the ceasing of the body, the separation of the immaterial from the immaterial part of man. The body stays, the immaterial part, the, the, the spirit goes, and that's how we think about death. However, when we recognize that the Bible defines death very differently and that in Genesis chapter 3 we see death defined, then we say, oh, okay. The first instance or the first, the first instance surrounding this word death is going to set for us the way we ought to think about death. And that makes sense. If you're writing a book and you want to uh, set a term in motion that's going to become a part of the theme of the book, early in the book, you are going to bring that word into the book and you are going to set down the thoughts as to what you want that word to mean or the context within which that word is, is intended to operate. So then as the book continues and you, you flesh out that theme, that word is in its proper context. So um, when in Genesis chapter 3, when we talk about death... Uh, death, when God promises in Genesis 2, the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Well, when Eve and Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree in Genesis chapter 3, and their body does not cease to function, we can only go two ways with that. The first way is to say, oh, God lied, they didn't die. Or we can say, oh, when God said death, he meant something different. Right? Those are the only two ways we can really go with that. And because it's the Bible, and God wrote the Bible, and so God put down what he expected to put down and what he intended to put down, we know that he did not introduce himself by failing, because then throughout the rest of the Word of God, he says, I do not fail. And so in that God does not fail, we only have one option on the table, and that's that the word death in the Bible is not defined as exclusively my body ceasing to function. Instead, it is defined by what happens when they partook of the fruit, which was they saw that they were naked, they clothed themselves, and then they hid themselves from God. An alienation from a relationship with God. And so that needs to become the definition of death that we carry through the word of God. And yes, we'll see other uh, uh, other. Uh, ideas of death as it relates to the body ceasing to function and whatnot. But thematically, the Bible has defined death for us. So this idea that we take what comes up early in precedence as it relates to a word and we allow that to be a fundamental help to us as we seek to define a word is a valid idea in the scriptures that as Jesus speaks of judgment, this is the first instance of judgment that we have here in Matthew chapter 7. And the idea that he says, judge not that ye be not judged. So um, when we think through this, uh, we've already read, read through that a little bit. We, we, we pursue a standard order of interpretation here, right? We say, okay, biblically, what can this not mean? Now, we, if, if we're walking through sequentially the word of God and we haven't read anything yet outside of Matthew, we don't know yet what it can't mean. So we're waiting for Jesus to confine the word here. We allow what is clear to interpret the unclear, and then we keep it in the context. And this is what we do in order to make sure that we don't overextend what Jesus Christ is saying here or fall short of what Jesus Christ is saying here. And we're going to do that in this passage as well. We're going to work through the passage, and we're going to do so based upon what is actually being said here. Um, I'm not ready to go to those yet. So, 
Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that ye be not judged. Judge not, and then we see the that there. Now, that can be several different ideas in our English language, but in the Greek here, it's hina, which is uh, the idea of in order that. Judge not in order that ye be not judged. So somebody help me here with this singular statement, and of course, we're not going to divorce it from the context, um, but with the singular statement, judge not in order that ye be not judged, what does it mean? Now, now you don't have to, don't, don't go beyond this yet. So what, what you say this means may not be the fullest extent of what, what the, the text is saying yet. So if you have an idea of, okay, it, it means this, but this, this, and this. No, let's just stick with what this means. Joel? Okay, so, um, so perhaps the idea that if you don't speak up, then, then other, you know, if, 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 we, if, we set a, if we set an environment of not speaking up or not holding things, and, and again, we, we, don't, we haven't really settled what judge would mean yet. We're going to get there. But whatever judgment is, if I don't do it, to others, or if, if we set an environment where we're not doing this, I'm not doing it to others, others aren't doing it to me. Now, that would be one possible idea. So they can't throw it back in your face type idea uh, of a whataboutism or whatever, you, what, what about you type idea. So um, they, can't, they can't throw it back in your face. They can't judge you. Other, other possibilities about what, where, where this, this could go. So Joel hit the earthly context, right? Andrea? Right. So then the question becomes, what about God, right, and judgment? So in our, our previous context is not going to help a whole lot with this idea because we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is kind of um, one thing after another. It's not contextually coherent, right? Jesus hits one thing, then he hits another thing, then he hits another thing. It's not like it's one continuous idea where if we go back into Matthew chapter 6, which just finished um, with... Uh, um, the whole idea of provision, right? As many, many people even thinking that maybe the Sermon on the Mount was not actually one sermon, but it was Matthew compiling a bunch of different teachings into a singular idea. Um, but there, there is not a, a coherent context where we say, okay, well, where did this come from, this judge not that you be not judged? Let's look back in the context and find out. That's not going to help us here. So we have this question mark of, are we talking horizontal relationships? Are we talking vertical relationships? Us with others or us with God? And this is a question in our mind as well.
Now, again, you've got a lot of scriptures flowing through your mind here about what this cannot mean. And because you know the scriptures, that's a very good and important part of interpretation. And we'll, we'll, we'll kind of get there. We'll, we'll hem it in as we continue. Uh, you're saying, well, I know what this can't mean. And I often, when I preach, we talk about that, right? What can this not mean? And we have a lot of things that we know this idea of judgment cannot mean. But for right now, we're just going to keep it where it is. Any other thoughts on this particular verse, judge not that you be not judged, and other considerations that we'll want to, questions that we'll want to ask or things we'll want to think about as we consider Jesus' teaching here? Right, and, and depending on what we mean by judgment, right? And this is where we, we, we need more information, right? What does he mean here? Because we talked about this last time. Um, certainly we can't say, as we think about the idea of judge, judge not lest you be judged, we, can't, we certainly can't say, all right, the full breadth and width of what judgment means biblically because the word judge talks about discerning things, talks about understanding, um, talks about um, being able to distinguish between one thing and another. And, and, and it, it, all of that can't be on the table here. So we need more, right? We need more insight to understand this. And we, we will we'll, we'll seek to get that insight. So then Jesus elaborates here. And he says, For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And this is where we, we can connect to some of Jesus' other teachings to understand a little bit of what's going on here. Now, one of the things that we have to understand is, or we have to first root ourselves in, we, we see in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, Paul say this, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ." Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, um, says quite clearly that he has not attained unto perfection, and yet as we look into the New Testament, we find that Paul has a lot to say about sin. And so we immediately start to think, all right, um, we can't be hemmed in by the idea that we're being called to be sinlessly perfect before we make any sort of distinguish, distinguishing or, or, or any sort of uh, um, statements of fact as it relates to right and wrong. Jesus, when we talk about this idea of for what, uh, with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged, and with what, with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again, Jesus spoke of this in other places. Um, we do see in Matthew chapter 6, a portion of this idea, verses 12 through 14 or 15. This is the 
what, we, what is often called the Lord's Prayer. We consider it the model prayer, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Uh, so we, we don't see in this the idea of judgment per se, but we see this from the realm of forgiveness, right? That releasing a brother of their trespasses and in releasing a brother of their trespasses, our Father, and in this context, that would be God, will release us from our own. So we see some of a context within Matthew chapter 6, which gives us maybe a bit of a vertical idea to this, right? A vertical idea that tells us that we will be treated by God in a manner that is commiserate with the way that we treat one another. Our horizontal relationships affect our vertical relationship. And so, so in, in Matthew chapter 6, we have this idea as it relates to forgiving. And then in Matthew chapter 7, we see kind of a, a, the, the inverse of it as it relates to judging. I forgive, I am forgiven. I judge, I am judged. And so this brings us to a broader principle that uh, Mark 11 verses 25 and 26 says it as well. When ye stand praying, forgive. If ye have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Luke 6, 37 and 38. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet, with all it shall be measured to you again. So we're seeing a broader principle here that judgment falls into. Judgment is a subset of this broader principle as it relates to sowing and reaping. That God interacts with us in a manner that is in line with the way we interact with one another. And it's not just a principle of judging. We see it a principle of judging, condemning, forgiving, and giving. Now, this is different from karma, right? But karma, as it is in the world, in, in Near Eastern religious systems, the idea that you put good in the world, you get good back, um, is a, a twist or a perversion of this idea, of the sowing and reaping principle, right? And if you were to articulate what the difference would be between kind of the Eastern, Near Eastern idea of karma and the biblical idea of sowing and reaping. This is an important thing to think about because if you interact with people, this is probably going to come up at some point. And you, you'll want to be able to articulate this at least in, in some way. What would the difference be between the, 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 the idea of karma and the, and the sowing and reaping principle? Sarah? Sarah? Good. So karma is, uh, has no, uh, what Sarah said is that, that 
um, sowing and reaping principle is specific. If I plant corn, I get corn. If I plant watermelon, I get watermelon, right? And so if I, if I plant into the spirit, then I reap the spirit. If I plant into the flesh, I reap the flesh. If I, if I act in, in a manner, I reap, if I act in a manner horizontally, I reap something vertically. Karma is horizontal all the way. Karma is material to material. If I give, I will get back materially. If I'm kind, I will get back materially. But see, the, the, the funny thing about forgiveness, let's say, will every aspect of forgiveness in your life be, if you sow forgiveness into your life, will it always be reaped horizontally? Absolutely not. That the, the karma, karmaic idea is, is kind of an idea that lends to a health and a wealth mode of Christianity that says, I'm going to put mine in and I'm going to get good back out in a material plane. But what we see is I'm going to put in what, what Christ would have me. We can call that good. Of course, the definition of good in the karmaic sense would be, very, as Sarah said, very loose. It's my perception of good as opposed to God's definition of good, right? But, but um, if I put in, whatever I put into, let's say it this way, whatever I put into the world, if I sow a spiritual thing, I will reap a spiritual reward that's representative of, of heavenly rewards, right? Whether or not I reap those things on this earth is entirely subjective. And the, re- the only reason why we struggle to connect ourselves to this concept is because we live in the United States of America, where in general, if I sow biblical principles into this society, I will reap good things as a general rule. If I have integrity, if I don't steal, if I'm honest and if I'm kind, our society is such that we'll generally reap those things back. But that's not a, a, tr- a worldwide trend, right? In many, many places of the world, you sow those things and you'll ha- they'll take your shirt and they'll take your shoes and they'll take your house and they'll leave you with nothing and they'll beat you up and, and, and they'll leave you on the side of the road. And so we are not looking at a horizontal relationship. We're looking at a, well, the, our horizontal relationships bring a vertical reward. And that's the sowing and reaping principle, as opposed to karmic principle, which is all horizontal, all earthly in principle. And to whatever degree, it's an afterlife idea, of course, in Eastern religion, that would be a reincarnate idea. So the karma may find its way back to you, but that's in the next material life. Right? You, you reincarnate as a cow because you did so well. Right? So that, there's a real difference here. But, but what we find then is that when Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged, he is, he is invoking a broader principle. And that broader principle is that God interacts with us vertically in a manner that is uh, consistent with how we interact with one another horizontally. 
And this it should become an overarching and overshadowing idea when we think of the concept of judgment. And if we could start by thinking of it this way, the question would be this. With your eyes wide open, am I treating that person the same manner that I would want to be treated? Now, and, and the reason why I say with my eyes wide open is this. Because a lot of times when a person comes up and says, you're judging me, you aren't, if, if you aren't, right, uh, in, in, the, in the unbiblical sense, in the, in the wrong sense, if you're actually expressing love toward them and you're not doing anything wrong, you know you're doing what is best for them. They don't. They think that you're, you're doing something to, to be unkind or to harm them, but you actually know that you're doing something to love them. And so when I say, with your eyes wide open, would you want to be treated that way? You put yourself, if I, if I can put it this way, into their shoes, but you don't change the biblical perspective. If they are outside of the biblical perspective and so they're upset when you're expressing love, you don't say, well, they're going to be upset, therefore I'm not going to do this. It's, no, if I were in this state, would I want someone to, would someone coming up and doing this to me be an expression of love or would it be an expression of, of something else? And, and then the question being, would I want God to interact with me in the same way that I am interacting with them? That if I were going down this path, would that be a path that would truly need to be handled in this way or, or, or not as it relates to my, my interactions with God. And so we see this idea. And, um, and we do see this principle fall back well into the Old Testament, where in Proverbs it talks about not rejoicing over the, the wrongs of your enemy, if you recall, or over the bad things that happened to your enemy. And the reason why is the Bible says, because the Lord might see that, thus have compassion on him and will spare him because of your rejoicing over their, over their, their, their failings. That's a judgment idea, isn't it? That I am, I see my enemy and I see terrible things happen to my enemy. And as I see those terrible things happen to my enemy, I rejoice over their terrible things. And God actually seeing my rejoicing over their sorrows, thus shows mercy to them as one who has been wronged by me. And so, so I, I stop and I say, would I want God to treat me the way I am about to treat that enemy? Because this is an overarching principle that we find in the scriptures. Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, the amount that you give out, it shall be measured back to you. And then, of course, this Luke passage does give us some horizontal ideas there. But with this vertical idea of God treating us the same. Thoughts? Sam? Mm-hmm. is the idea that, as an analogy, everybody's kind of born with 
Mm -hmm. And then as you get older, you start that starts to get bigger and bigger. And you know, when you get around 17, 18, you hold up, mom and dad don't measure up, you know, you get a little older, maybe the pastor doesn't measure up, and then you get 20, 25, and then you wish you could chop off a chunk of it. Um, because you start you start rationalizing why these things are okay because you're you know, you kind of have that um, almost a Yeah, well, and, and this, this is the thing. So, so you're exactly right, Sam. You know, everyone is, is measuring other people, right? And we're, we're, we're always measuring based upon our sensibilities and our understandings. And, and we, we, we can probably get into a discussion at some point within this about the idea of accountability and culpability and those sorts of things as it relates to, you know, different people and the yardstick that they have. Uh, but this is where... I think what Jesus is telling us here becomes fundamentally, um, well, it becomes fundamental. So it is human nature to hold myself, to, to, to view myself and others in relation to, our, to my standard. And that is the danger. And you're right, we'll get into this in Romans chapter 2. Um, there is a difference between me and you agreeing that there is a standard and me holding you accountable to my standard. There's a big difference. And when, I, when you and I agree that there is a standard, and we might disagree about what that standard is in, in, in parts, but when we hold up a standard and we say this is the standard, there's nothing about that that is judgmental. There's nothing about me telling you that there is a standard that is judgmental in the, the sense that we're seeing it in Matthew 5, and we're, we're still working our way through that. Much to the contrary, this is, and, and the way I often describe it is, there's a difference between me judging someone and the Word of God judging someone. But what happens when I start to set a yardstick? And, and we can say, yes, that yardstick is based upon the Word of God. So I've got my yardstick, and it's, it's the standard. But what we're going to find is that there's a manner of interacting with others that will give me insight into whether or not I am judging everyone against my standard, holding them to that, 
or I am proclaiming a standard that we are all accountable to. And that's what we consider as we continue. So he says in verse 3, let me see, do I still have, yes. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. And what you're going to find is that in this context of judgment, the kind of judgment that is not what Christ would have of us. A primary concept, whether it's here or whether it's in Romans chapter 2 or whether it's in uh, um, uh, um, it's one of the Corinthian ones. I forget which one now. I forget the reference now. But, but what we're going to find is that several of them will invoke this idea of hypocrisy. And this is a very, very important concept to unrighteous judgment. The concept of hypocrisy. So the idea of hypocrisy is what Jesus is espousing here. That, that there's a moat in my eye, that there, or there's a moat in my brother's eye, there's a beam in my eye, or even the other way around. You know, we, we talk about this. And we always use Jesus' analogy here. Your brother has a moat. A moat would be something very small, right? A small speck. And I have in my eye something large. And I'm looking at my brother and I'm saying, let me help you get the speck out of your eye when I have something large in my eye. And that is what we might call a worst case scenario of judgment. Where I've got a major problem in my life and I'm ignoring it, but I am holding my brother to a, a standard for something small that he's dealing with in his life. Or I, as we would call it, ma I'm majoring on the minors as it relates to others while I myself am dealing with big problems. But it doesn't have to be that, right? This is really, I mean, the, 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 the idea can be little problem, little problem, big problem, big problem, big problem, little problem. It doesn't matter. The idea is you've got issues going on in your own life, and yet you are focusing on others. And so as we think about this idea of hypocrisy, I, 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 I hear all the time, depending on who you talk to, there's, there's various people and they say, well, everyone's a hypocrite, right? Because we all, we all do things that we know are not right, and we say that you shouldn't do them, but we do them anyway. That's not hypocrisy. That's having a sin nature, but that's not at least biblical hypocrisy. We say that hypocrisy is when you say one thing and do the opposite. It's not hypocrisy for me to say lying is wrong and still lie because I'm going to lie because I'm human. Lust is wrong, but I lust because I'm going to lust because I'm human. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when I hold other people to a standard that I'm not holding myself. Where I will hold, where, where, where we will, in a, in a context, censure someone for something that they're doing when I'm doing it too. Or censure someone for something they're doing 
when I'm doing something just as wicked in another area of life. And we, we can get into this mode in, in the church sometimes, right? Where we have our sins that are bad sins and then our sins which are still bad, but maybe we don't really think about them, right? So we, we have the sins like uh, fornication and homosexuality and these sorts of things. And we, we, we have those as the really bad sins. And then we have the sins that we don't really think about like gluttony, and immodesty, or whatever it might be, right? And, and of course, by immodesty, I don't necessarily mean the dress form. I mean the drawing attention to myself form. It could be the dress form, too, although I think in, in our circles, at least, immodesty would be on the ones that we, we major on, right? And so we ignore these sins, because these sins are, are the sins that we're engaged in and, and, and they're inconvenient for us to address while censuring people for these sins. And this is the idea that Jesus is espousing here as he talks about hypocrisy. That we're not holding an equal standard here. And the problem as Jesus espouses it is not that these people should not be told that they're sinning the fornicators and the sodomites and the whatever it might be. It's not that they should not be told they're sinning. It's that I need to get down out of my ivory tower and stop pretending like I'm not. And if I am sitting here and I have a problem of intemperance in my own life, it's not that I cannot tell this person who has a problem of fornication in their life that they, are, that they should not be fornicating. It's that I ought to treat them with this, the grace that I would desire to be treated with as it relates to my intemperance. And then we set, a, uh, then we set things in place in order to deal with that. And so this is the idea of hypocrisy. That I, that I am able to, and this is what humans do, I am able to justify my own problems because I have reasons. Well, yeah, you know, I've got this problem in my life, but the reason why I, I struggle with that is because of this. And I know God understands that and, and, and I'm working on it or whatever it might be. And so I, I actually, I'm doing really well. And then I look at those people and I say, but not those people. Those people, they're just dirty, rotten sinners. Well, that's what Jesus is talking about. And remember who he's speaking to here. Jewish listeners. People who had the law. And as Romans chapter 2 will describe it. Let's go ahead and we're, we're, we're not studying that passage yet. But, but Paul describes it beautifully. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same thing. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, knowing, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto the, uh, thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So we see the distinction here. You, you are judging others, and he's speaking to Jews here, right? He's speaking to Jewish readers, and he says you are holding yourself up, and, and he goes on to speak of this. 
Um, Behold, thou art, verse 17, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which hast the form of knowledge and the truth in the law. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest not thou, uh, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? So this idea being that we, we clothe our failings in religious veneers. And we have this subset of failings that we are just fine with, that we are able to operate in without compromising that which the church would see and thus have a problem with, or our religious community, or, or maybe our family. And because of that, we, it, it's like, well, it's like we're callous to these things. And this can happen, as I said, in religious communities. This can happen in families, where your family kind of has a subset of things that it holds on to. Maybe it's um, that, that, you're, uh, that you gossip about others, that you mock people behind their backs. And this happens, and when it happens, everyone giggles, and it's just kind of what your family does, and... and and because your family has a, a culture surrounding it, you don't even think twice about it. When in fact, you're belittling, gossiping, mocking. And then you look at others and you see their sins without considering that you have your own. And this is the idea here. The connection between unrighteous judgment and hypocrisy is very, very strong in the scriptures. So can I tell a person they're doing wrong without judging them? Well, the question comes down to, is it possible to tell a person they're doing wrong without comparing myself to them? Without allowing, without allowing myself a pass, without seeing myself as they're better. And can I tell a person that they're doing wrong in a manner that is gracious, not seeking to censure them, but seeking to help them? And this is an important part of it, because if you are doing wrong and you expect, as I've said, if, if you, the, well, let me ask you. You're struggling with a sin. How would you want God to interact with you in relation to that sin? Nathaniel. Yeah. Neither chasten me in my hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. Right? 
Right. Right. So David did not come. Now, now obviously with David, um, David was confessing. Can we think of an example of, someone, of, of God interacting with someone? Well, we don't even need an example per se. Um, let's talk about people that aren't humble yet, aren't in a place where they're eager and ready to change. We know that God will always respond graciously to one who is eager and ready to change because God gives grace to the humble. But when I'm in a place of sin, let's, let, let's walk through some scenarios. So I'm in a place of sin and I'm struggling with that sin. God will invariably be gracious, right? If I know I'm struggling and I'm, 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 I'm working on it, right? I'm working on it, but that sin is dying hard in me. We would expect God to be gracious. Let's stay on that scenario for a minute. What happens if that person who's really struggling with a sin, and we have a parable about this that Jesus gives, what happens if that person who's really struggling with a sin and then someone else is really struggling, genuinely struggling with a sin and that person holds their feet to the fire, shows them no grace, uh, hard as iron heart against, against their failings. That's, that's unrighteous judgment. I am leaning on God to be merciful to me. And Jesus gives the parable, right, of the man who owed much. And the master, frankly, forgives. And then that man who owed very much and was forgiven goes to another man who owed him very little and says, give me all that you owe me. And the man says, just give me time. Not only would he not give him time, uh, forgive, but he wouldn't give him time. He threw him in debtor's prison. And when the master hears about it, he takes that man who would not forgive after he had been forgiven much, and he throws him in the debtor's prison until he pays the last farthing. That's the idea. That we maintain a perspective in our lives that says, hey, look, I'm struggling too. And I'm going to treat you the way I want to be treated as it relates to my struggling, the, the sin I'm struggling with in humility. Brother comes up and says, hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with this. I'm dealing with lust. I'm dealing with, uh, I, I'm, I'm dealing with uh, um, uh, difficulty as it relates to my speech being edifying, um, uh, whatever it might be. There's a man who is, or a woman, who's, who's, who's working on themselves, who's seeking unto the Lord, to, 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 to be helped and to grow. Well, we treat them the way God would treat us and the way we'd want him to treat us. But now let's talk about the man who doesn't know. Either he's in ignorance or he's in rebellion. How do we approach a person in ignorance or rebellion as it relates to being sure that we are not in unrighteous judgment. 
Joel. Check your motives. Check your approach. All right, so let's, let's take those in turn. Let's start with approach. Judge not that you be not judged. So the first thing that we do, Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Am I in rebellion? Am I in ignorance? Well, I don't know about that, right? And so I might seek into some counsel. Am I in ignorance? Is there, is there anything in my life that would hinder me from being able to be honest and in my integrity help and approach a brother? And then approach. You'd like to always assume ignorance first, right? And so we get on the same page. We seek to be in agreement as it relates to the problem. And what we might find is that we are in a measure of disagreement about certain things. Maybe it is that I am in disagreement with my brother about what the Bible is actually saying. But I find that my brother is actually genuine as it relates to his desire to obey the Bible. Okay, so here's a person who's genuine but disagrees with me. Well, the solution then is not for me to censure his action. The solution is for us to spend time together trying to get on the same page. Why do we disagree about this? And is this something we can disagree on in, with both of us in purity? And what you'll find as you walk through that is either you two will get on the same page, find that this is something you can disagree on while both of you are in purity, or someone's being dishonest with themselves and with you, or, or you with them. That someone is not being honest with where they are. That they say, yeah, I, I truly believe the Bible. And then you show them the verse that explicitly contradicts what they're doing. And they say, well, yeah, but. Okay, well, well then, then be honest. You don't believe the Bible in this area. You don't believe this. Let's be honest. Right? And in, the, and, and in this manner, I am searching out. And I am giving opportunity both for myself and for them to understand where we are. Because the method and the, and the, um, the, the, uh, the motive, if I am ever bringing something up, my motive should not be, you have offended me. It should be, I want to help you. Or protect others. Sometimes there are things that happen where, say, someone comes into the church and they're dressed in something that uh, is where, our, 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 you know, where, where a woman comes into the church and she's dressed in something that where the men of the church um, need to be protected. Hard situation, but there needs to be a, a, a situation there where it's not, yes, we, we want to help you, but first we need to protect. We need to protect the people that come here in purity and then let's, let's then take the next step of trying to figure out where, where we differ on this thing, right? Those, there, there are times where it's for protection, not just to help. But either way, the motive is never to be, let me step down off of my high horse to instruct you on what is right in my eyes.
that's where we get into hypocritical judgment. So we have these different scenarios, but they all come down to this idea of how am I relating myself to God? How would I desire God to relate himself to me? Would I be okay with God treating me in the fashion? And again, when we say okay, it's would I be okay with God treating me this way if my eyes were wide open? Which means if I am in rebellion, if my eyes are wide open, yes, I want God to stop me. I want God to be heavy-handed with me if necessary to pull me out of the path. That's, that, that is what I want of God if my eyes are wide open. I don't want that when I'm in my rebellion. But if I'm out of my rebellion, thinking about the possibility of being in rebellion, that's exactly what I want of God. I want him to put, a, I want him to put the angel of the Lord between me and and, and my destination and make that donkey slam me into rocks to stop me from doing it, what I'm about to do, right? I, I, if, if I'm Balaam, that angel is mercy, even though he's about ready to kill me. That donkey is mercy, even though he's hurting me. So with my eyes wide open, I want that. And then I step into my interaction with another with that in mind. Now, if we do that, a lot of our interactions, maybe not personal interactions, because when you're looking someone in the eye, it's actually a lot easier to judge not lest you be judged. But it's a lot harder when, say, it's people in Washington. Or it's the abortion group that's protesting, right? Are there people there that, that are there with absolute malice in their heart, yes. But how many of those people are being drawn along, are being, have been sucked into something and they know not what they do? But I have a tendency, a propensity, a temptation to impose upon them my morals and motives, my perspectives and intents, And then to see them all as the same. Not knowing what might be going on in the the mind. Now, that doesn't mean I don't tell the truth. But it means I need to check the way I view them and the motive for telling them the truth. Am I trying to get cheap wins? Am I trying to elevate myself at their expense? Would I want God to treat me in their situation the same way that I'm treating them? Well, maybe if, if, if they are the vile person, but do I know that? What if they aren't and I'm treating them that way? If they aren't that vile person, I'm, I have propped up in my mind that they are and I treat them that way, then, and they're in ignorance. They have been drawn away by some ignorant fancy or by some emotional whim or by what they have been told their whole life. Would you want God to treat you the way you're treating them if you have something that you've simply been told your whole life and you've just believed it and you're doing what is consistent with a person who's simply been told this their whole life, but, you know, maybe they've never fully considered, would you want God to treat you in that situation the way you're about to treat them? 
because that's the warning here. It does not mean I cannot discern. It does not mean I cannot say right and wrong. What I would want God to do with me in ignorance is send someone to tell me what's right and wrong, but certainly not someone to reject me, lay the hammer down on me, alienate me, elevate themselves at my expense. I'd want someone to tell me. Right? And, and, and we do see in Matthew chapter 7, um, Jesus absolutely gives a, a path forward to pull the moat out of your brother's eye. Right? We can't get away from that. That in this concept of judge not lest you be judged, Jesus does not say, just... Drop it. There's no mode in your brother's eye. There's, no, no, there's nothing in anyone's eyes. We all just have perfect eyes. You have your eyes. I have my eyes. And maybe your eyes are different than my eyes. And your eyes have little specks in them. And my eyes have little specks in mine. But all of our specks are just equally as valid. No. No. There is, there is a path forward to pull the moat out of my brother's eye or the beam or whatever it might be. But I need to consider that path carefully to make sure that the way I am doing it is such that I am more than willing to have the Lord treat me the way I'm treating them. And that I am not doing so in a manner that, that, that is reflective of me elevating myself at their expense. Because all of that is going to come back on me in the vertical. And so really the idea of judge not lest you be judged is a fearful idea. Very similar to um, other concepts of Scripture, such as in James, my brethren, be not many masters, knowing they shall receive the greater condemnation. It's a fearful idea in one sense to step into the ministry. It should be a fearful idea to step into a, a righteous judging relationship even because of the possibilities surrounding unrighteous judgment. And the reality that God treats us in a manner that is consistent with the way we treat others. So that frames our mind upon every interaction, not being an interaction of personal gratification, of um, self-aggrandizement, of um, unrighteous judgment, but rather of edification and love. And sometimes edification and love means I have to tell you that you're on the wrong path. but I'm going to do it in a manner that is consistent with the way I would want God to tell me that with my eyes wide open. And I certainly wouldn't want him to start with get out of my church, right? I'd want him to start with something significantly more gentle, patient, helpful. All right, we, uh, we, we have to wrap it up for tonight. Any final thoughts? All right, we will pick up back in Matthew 7. We'll review this next week before we move on to our next passage. We'll see a couple more times in the life of Jesus with judgment before we move into the epistles. Um, but this is the idea. So, so we are setting a definition for judgment. And judgment is not 
questioning a person on what they're doing, um, disagreeing with a person, um, having my own standards. These things are not judgmental. Judgment is self-elevation, holding others to my standard rather than God's standard. Uh, uh, hypocrisy, setting aside certain sins and focusing on other sins and then censuring those who have those sins but ignoring our culturally acceptable ones. And these are the tendencies in the human heart that we need to avoid. We'll pick up there next week. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.